0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. I'm Tim Wyatt, digital editor, and this week I'm joined by Hattie Williams, reporter; Madeline Davies, deputy news editor; and Ed Thornton, assistant editor. Coming up this week, we hear from the Archbishop of Canterbury about the Thy Kingdom Come Pentecost prayer initiative. We look at uh, non-English speaking churches in the Church of England, and we interview Andrew Davison about this week's reading group. He's looking at the book The Case for Working with Your Hands or why office work is bad for us and fixing things feel good. But first, Thy Kingdom Come. Hundreds of thousands of Christians of many denominations around the world were expected to join in the second annual Great Wave of Prayer during the ten days between Ascension Day and Pentecost. The events of this year's Thy Kingdom Come ranged from vigils and worship to pilgrim walks and festivals. Hattie Williams went to Lambeth Palace to speak to Archbishop Justin Welby to hear more.
1: How do you respond to people who say that prayer is something that Christians should be doing all the time and perhaps think that it's a bit odd that we're making quite such a big deal of it?
2: Well, Jesus encouraged people to pray in a society in which people pray a great deal. I think we all need encouraging to pray. There's lots of things that we should do the, the whole time but get neglected Part of the approach to the church here is to say certain seasons of the year we renew our commitment in certain areas. Lent you renew your personal discipline, you're seeking to put aside the things that hinder our walk with Christ. Between Ascension and Pentecost historically has been a, a really important time for renewing our commitment to prayer, prayer for the coming of the Holy Spirit particularly. And I think it's just, historically, that's how the church has worked,
1: seasons of prayer. You wrote in your reflection on um, Thy Kingdom Come about the sort of pain and anguish and how that can be healed in some way by prayer and also mm. pull people from isolation. Um, is there some acknowledgement of the, of the personal struggle of prayer sometimes and actually mm. not being distracted and actually knowing how to pray as well?
2: Yes, that's a very good question. I think I want to encourage people in prayer, first of all to encourage community prayer because part of praying as a community is we carry each other. When we're struggling with our own issues and turmoils, and I expect we've all been in that kind of place where you go to church or to a place of prayer really not able to pray but just overwhelmed by things. You know that feeling when when you sit down and you're quiet, it's not that you suddenly experience the presence of God, you just experience the presence of everything that's really getting at you
1: more visibly.
2: One way of the healing of people dealing with anguish is learning to pray together so that someone who is really suffering, may be bereaved, they may just be overwhelmed by life, stressed, troubled in many ways, that they can find themselves carried by everyone else in prayer. And they find healing that way. The second thing I want to do is encourage people Actively to pray for each other's healing and renewal. We need to be as Christian disciples those who are aware of our moments of desolation, and those are the moments where it's not the best moment entirely to engage with the things that most overwhelming. That process of encountering the love of God through others praying for you, with you, or just being at a place where people are praying, and the encounter with the love of God is what you then witness
0: to others, and somehow life's just a little more manageable. And that's a good level of witness. Um, Hattie, this is the second year of Thy Kingdom Come. How has the event uh, moved on since last year?
1: Last year, it was very much started out as a small project, really, to get more people to pray, but also to pray for others, um, to bring them to Christ. Um, and this year, it's sort of um, ballooned, really. Uh, lots more people have got involved, uh, and it's spread all over the world. Um, and more importantly in, in lots of creative ways um, and a lot, of the, um, a lot of the discussion I had with the Archbishop was um, some of the creative ways in which um, the prayer initiative has taken off, um, so for example there have been uh, beacon events at cathedrals all over the UK, um, there's been um, fire pits and fireworks, there's been food and drink festivals, pilgrim walks, prayers. All sorts of ways of expressing um, prayer in community and, and that was one of the things that the Archbishop was stressing is, is that actually praying together can sometimes be more fulfilling uh, than praying alone and, and perhaps sometimes less of a struggle.
3: Archbishop Justin wrote for the Church Times last September to sort of launch this, the second um, year of Thy Kingdom Come. Um, interesting how he talked about it, it as emphatically not a top-down centralised initiative and I think when it was first announced, and the archbishops wrote to every priest in the Church of England, every serving priest, it, it may, there may have been a few groans. There may have been a few people saying, "Well, archbishops would tell us to pray." Of course, they want evangelism. I think there are echoes of of previous big evangelistic initiatives, um, such as the Decade of Evangelism. People thought, "What's different?" and I think one of the things the first year that helped it really take off was, was the role of, of social media and how much people could post what they were doing. And that, I think, helped it gain international um, recognition. I remember a one priest cycling around his parish with a, a camera on his helmet, praying for his parish and um, posting that on Twitter and just just so different to how you imagine just another prayer meeting.
0: I think the uh, international side of it has been the most striking thing for me, seeing um, they've got these regular daily videos from uh, clerics and bishops all over the world. Um, There have been Roman Catholics, there have been Pentecostals, Presbyterians. It's really like emphatically no longer just a CV or even Anglican thing now, which is really quite striking because you don't see very many genuine kind of ecumen- ecumenical uh, evangelistic movements these days. Most of the kind of discussion between churches is often fairly like dusty and dry committee meetings and this seems something quite different.
3: I think it's also seems to have had a longer term impact on some churches. I remember in the Archbishop's article for us last year he he mentioned how you know one church had never really been open before but it opened for prayer every day and it's now looking at ways to be open permanently and that can lead to new people attending, new ways of reaching out to the community. Other churches have reported that it's created a sort of spiritual hunger so their prayer meetings beyond Pentecost throughout the year are perhaps better attended or, or people feel more of a hunger to pray?
1: I think no one is more surprised really than the Archbishop himself and and uh, the team at Lambeth because I think initially there were um, from the sense I get is that there were sort of fewer resources and people perhaps to promote it in the way that they hoped um, to start with but very quickly perhaps because as you say of social media it did really uh, kick off um, you know a simple hashtag you know, can be tracked, and you know we're looking at millions of of followers. Um, I think the videos which have been created specifically for this initiative have been viewed something like three million uh, times, which is quite significant, really, um, and that's all over all over the globe, as I say.
0: The other thing that's interesting is how uh, corporate prayer uh, on behalf of the Church of England is really something that th- that the nation still feels a need for. I mean, we talked last week about how the Bishop of Manchester had been everywhere on the news following the the bombing there playing that kind of role as chief pastor to the city into the region and i think um similarly with the the lord's prayer initiative that was infamously banned from cinemas i think there's a real sense that prayer is one of there's few points of connection between the established but increasingly diminished church and a, and a secularized nation. There is something that people still instinctively turn to the church and to people for prayer. And it's it's a much safer, um, more accessible way to do evangelism, perhaps, than to hold huge uh, crusades in the kind of Billy Graham style that we saw maybe 60, 70 years ago, which just probably wouldn't engage with, with uh, modern Britain.
3: I think the fact that it's at Pentecost
0: is significant,
3: because I think the thinking behind Thy Kingdom Come is that rather than just telling people go out and evangelize more go and share your faith more it's saying we all need the empowering of the holy spirit so it's 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 praying that ancient prayer come holy spirit and then kind of seeing what happens rather than saying do this course run this event it's saying get together to pray and then in your particular context see how the um holy spirit works to um empower you to share your faith
0: I think one of the interesting things from what hearing Archbishop Welby talk in, in your interview earlier, Hattie, was how he was quite honest about, you know, people find prayer difficult and that's okay. You know, even archbishops might find prayer difficult. And I think for kind of quote unquote ordinary Christians, it's something quite encouraging to hear that actually, you know, yes, we all know we should be praying, but yes, none of us pray quite as much as we know we should be. And so it's quite liberating to see that, um, you know, everyone is being encouraged to pray from you know Archbishop all the way down to Sunday school. Of course, the very first Pentecost was marked by the gift of tongues to the disciples in Jerusalem uh, days after Jesus had left them. Uh, Madeline, you've got a fascinating feature in, in this week's Church Times looking at the different multilingual and non English speaking congregations in the Church of England. Um, what did you find out?
4: Yeah, so I've been speaking um, to congregations across the C of E who um, are conducting services uh, where English um, isn't the language. Um, this is a response to the fact that um, in the UK, one in eight people uh, are now born abroad and around 8% have a language other than English as their main one. So it's really looking at how can the church reach those people to make sure that the English language isn't a barrier to those people um, becoming involved in the life of the church, um, becoming involved in its mission. Um, some of the people I spoke to talked about um, how it could be a barrier, even if you understand English, English so comprehension isn't the problem. Um, it can be a spiritual barrier, not being able to pray and praise and read the Bible and discuss the Bible in your mother tongue.
0: There's this idea of kind of like a heart language and that you need to speak and commune with God in your heart language no matter how good you might be at English.
4: Yeah and um, you know people gave examples of particular verses or descriptions in the Bible or even hymns where being able to um, connect with that in their original language which could often have different connotations to English was really important and powerful for them. So there's a, a Welsh vicar that I spoke to who gave me some examples of hymns and just what resonance they had for him when they were in Welsh rather than English.
0: Is this kind of a new thing, or are some of these congregations quite old? How long has this been going on for?
4: I think they're growing. Um, There was actually a news release from CMS this week that talked about there being um, at least 20 such congregations around London alone, Um, and certainly um, successive waves of immigration, obviously, have changed the UK um, and created different... of population groups um, across the country i think it's fair to say that the cv hasn't always successfully perhaps welcomed immigrants Um, so uh, probably still catching up to a certain extent uh, about making sure that um, it celebrates people from different backgrounds and different cultures Um, at the same time i asked some of my interviewees how can we make sure that um, that there's integration And several of them recognised that it would be dangerous to um, allow people to sort of exist in isolation or in ghettos. They talked about the importance of learning English, of it being a lingua franca. Um, But also, um, yeah, creating opportunities not only for people to learn English, but to come together in their own language. Um, There was an example um, of a Zimbabwean fellowship um, where they encouraged people to worship generally um, in, in an English-speaking parish weekly but then monthly coming together where they can speak um, in their native languages.
0: Is there a sense that the CAV is dealing better with the kind of more recent ways of immigration than it may have done when uh, post-war I remember hearing um, some Afro-Caribbean priests at a synod lament the fact that when they first arrived in kind of immediate post war era, many, many CV churches did not make them feel welcome. And hence, that's why most Afro Caribbean people in Britain now worship in kind of independent Pentecostal churches.
4: Yeah, so um, at least a couple of the priests that I spoke to um, described having experienced racism. Um, so I think it would be quite complacent to say that the CV is perfect in that regard. Um, but certainly there seems to be. Um, a greater awareness of the need not just to involve people in the congregation but to ensure that their gifts are really enabled including possibly if they have a calling towards ordination um, so for example um, I spoke to uh, the team at St Paul's Stratford um, they've actually ordained two Bulgarian priests so um, as a means of um, responding to the Eastern European um, immigration to the area so I think that's um, a real challenge for the CV to ensure that it's not just preaching to people where English isn't their first language but actually ordaining people as well.
3: I thought an interesting part of your piece was when it talked about the cultural differences at different congregations um, where you say fellowship at the morning English speaking services might focus on small talk around tea and coffee but members of the Hindi and Tamil congregations would think nothing of asking for a mobile phone number of a new acquaintance or texting late at night to request prayer. Um, And then then one of the priests you interviewed hopes that perhaps some of the cultural norms might cross over into English-speaking congregations, so perhaps where predominantly English congregations are much more reserved, perhaps there could be Hmm. some sort of um, opening up.
4: Yeah, I really wanted to ask um, how... um immigration and groups where English isn't the first language had enriched the church so I think there's a danger that it can be seen as a barrier to be crossed mm. or some kind of issue to be resolved and I wanted to ask people actually in what ways has that enriched the city? of e um, there was a really nice example from the team in Olperton St James's um, and the team vicars there gave some really good examples of ways in which they think actually the English congregation had things to learn um, from, from the others that, that are involved in the church. Um, the vicar actually suggested that sometimes there's a tendency for British people who have problems um, to isolate themselves from the church and to feel ashamed about sharing their problems. And he really hoped that they could learn from the um, Hindi and Tamil congregations who really support one another and are not embarrassed to share their problems and have WhatsApp groups where they share prayer requests. Um, he really hoped that that could be something which um, which translated across.
0: Did anything uh, stand out from the paper for you this week, Ed?
3: Uh, Keith Hebden from the Urban Theology Union in Sheffield wrote a really interesting piece in our comments section on the robot revolution and the rise of automation and how um, basically robots could take away a lot of people's jobs. So in the you know social care sector, um, a lot of care of the elderly and housebound could be done by automated robots and um, logistics, so getting stuff from A to B could be done by driverless vehicles, making up to 30,000 truck drivers redundant. And he was saying, he's, he's not trying to be Luddite about it, but he's saying this is going to happen, we need to be prepared for the social and political consequences. So mass, un, you know, if there's high levels of unemployment, what are we going to do? Also being aware that technology is something that can both free us, but also enslave us. And the Sabbath was made for man not man for the sabbath Uh,
0: madeline what about you anything catch your eye
4: yeah i was struck by another letter um, related to the feature we did on hdb church planting Um, this one is from an anglo-catholic parish um, but tells quite a positive story it's from saint augustine's queensgate uh, from a member of the congregation there um, he talks about um, a very different experience of church planting to one that we discussed last week saying that he'd found um, hdbt loving and supportive um, and that there was no need for any rift um, so kind of a, a counter perhaps to some of the other responses that we've had to that feature
0: the thing that i found really interesting this week was a uh, part of our education supplement um, it was a feature by peter foggo and his wife alex who are uh, headmaster and deputy headmaster of a primary school in in Hampshire, and it's basically they're uh, explaining why they're quitting teaching. It's not something they ever really wanted to do. They both saw it as more than a job at a vocation, but they've decided they've decided to resign. And they talk about how they talk about how the new primary curriculum is um, dull and uninspiring, a diet of subordinating conjunctions and fronted adverbials, which um, is at the expense of creativity and developing children's questioning and critical faculties. And also, they also say, in just one small example, um, during the last month, they had a SATS week um, and uh, a seven-year-old girl in, in one of um, Peter Foggo's classes um, was apparently uh, repeatedly asking uh, when it would be her time to take these tests and stressing out about it. And he writes, why should a child of seven be fretting and worrying over these meaningless tests? Is this what I came into teaching for? <laughs> In this
3: week's paper, this month's Reading Groups book is introduced by Andrew Davison, Starbridge Lecturer in Theology and Natural Sciences at the University of Cambridge. The book is by Matthew Crawford, and it's called The Case for Working with Your Hands, or Why Office Work is Bad for Us and Fixing Things Feels Good. I spoke to Andrew about why he thought this would make an interesting choice for the Church Times Reading Groups.
5: Well, I actually came across the book twice because it has a different UK and US title, uh, and I'd come across the UK title, which is um, The Case for Working with Your Hands, and has rather a good subtitle, Why Office Work is Bad for Us and Fixing Things Feels Good. I'd come across that a few years ago in some reviews in the newspapers. And then this year I've been uh, in the United States uh, as a, a visitor, academic visitor. And a number of my friends have been talking about this book by Matthew Crawford called "Called uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft. And I thought, oh, goodness, he's written another book. And then the more I heard about it, I thought, well, it sounds rather like the one that I'd already come across. And in fact, it has different US and UK titles. Shop Class is what used to be, I suppose, technology lessons in schools, um, learning to make things out of wood and, and fix cars and bicycles and that kind of thing. Over here in the States, it's called Shop Class. Well, that doesn't translate very well uh, in England, so they gave it a different title. So they're the the ways that I came across it Um, and really it's about this man uh, Matthew Crawford's search for happiness and integrity which makes it sound a little bit like uh, a cheesy Hollywood um, film I suppose, One Man's Search for Happiness and Integrity Uh, but actually it's full of all sorts, um, politics, ethics, history, lots of his own biography which I'll come to in a minute One of the great things about this book is that it works on two different levels. On the one hand, it's full of ideas from politics, ethics, history, uh, economics. But it's also just the story of this man's life, Matthew Crawford, and how he... uh, It's a rather colourful life. He grew up in a commune and is doing all sorts of odd jobs, learning to be an electrician very early on. Uh, And then he has an academic life and seems to be successful at that. Uh, has one or two different office jobs uh, often involving writing. Uh, he gets his PhD and then eventually is uh, lands rather a lucrative job at a Washington DC think tank. Uh, when he thinks he's got everything made and he realises that he's just desperately unhappy that it's not um, fulfilling him at all and that the thing he's doing in the evenings and the weekends which is tinkering with an old motorbike is what's really making him happy so he throws everything uh, over leaves his uh, job and sets up as a uh, motorbike r- repair man um, and that's where we get the the title from shop class as soul craft in the in the United States version anyway um, shop class being the, um, the classes at school where people were taught carpentry and how to fix cars and motorbikes bicycles uh, that kind of thing but my own, my own father all the way through my childhood used to teach an evening class, um, teach people how to fix their cars. So that's perhaps one of the reasons also that it, um, it, it appealed to me.
3: What was it about office work that he found so unfulfilling?
5: Well, he makes the argument, and I find it convincing, that one of the things that really marks happiness is being uh, so caught up with something that you, you lose the passage of time um, being immersed in an activity, being absorbed in something and uh, he just wasn't finding that in the, in the work in, a, in an office. Um, partly because uh, also the particular jobs that he was doing, they were trying to be done as, as quickly and as cheaply, efficiently as possible. So at one stage he's writing uh, manuals and no one's really interested in whether the manuals that he's writing for these, I think, electronic uh, items are any good or not. They've just got to get through a certain number of um, bits of writing.
3: What is it that he finds so fulfilling about working as a mechanic?
5: Well, one thing that certainly is really important for him is the idea of learning to be really excellent at something. Um, Being uh, a a craftsman, um, really technically able and winning the respect of other people uh, and feeling uh, proud in what he's doing. And he contrasts that with um, the way in which factory work about a hundred years ago was, sort of de-skilled to use that uh, awful awful word um, that uh, it was cheaper to employ people who uh, weren't necessarily experts at what they were doing but could follow uh, instructions and uh, he thinks that really took the uh, the excellence and the contentment out of uh, manual labor whereas in his case every day he brings some kind of uh, new adventure or experiment someone brings in a in a motorbike um, and he has this um, wonderful discussion of how he gets lost in the work that he's doing. He sort of um, is absorbed in what he's doing. And also a wonderful sense that it's using all of him, that he even has to learn to be able to feel how a motorbike um, is running, and uh, in a very kind of tactile way, uh, have have knowledge of, of motorbikes like that. And it really struck true to me, this idea of happiness and contentment coming through those occasions where we get lost in what we're doing, really absorbed in them, often when there's some form of making. So in my case, I think about um, being out in the garden and um, just the happiness of being able to attend to what's in front of me and um, quite often the sense of losing the sense of time. Um, or I suppose in my case also, I feel like that when I'm when I'm
3: writing. You write in the piece that Crawford is something of a contrarian. Could you say more about that? Well,
5: that's one of the things that made me think that this would be quite a good book for people to study Together in a book group, uh, because he's bound to provoke a lively discussion because he just doesn't sit that easily within, for instance, standard uh, political distinctions. So there's plenty here that will annoy people who are maybe more on the political left, and plenty that will annoy people who are on the are on the political right, and that's probably quite a good thing uh, in a in a book group. It's going to. Provoke discussion.
3: You you write that parts of the book brought to mind some writings of Rome Williams on prayer. Is that right?
5: Yes. Yeah, so it was um, it was fun. I thought to recommend a book for the Church Times reading page, uh, as is often the, the case, that isn't necessarily directly theological, uh, but there's a lot of it that a lot in it that I think will provoke um, theological responses. I mean, anything that's to do with economics and uh, work the way we treat people is going to be, you know, theologically interesting, but the point about Rome Williams is that Crawford makes a beautiful case for his apprenticeship as a motorbike mechanic, as being an exercise in learning to attend to things, pay attention to things. And that reminded me of Rome Williams talking about prayer as a, a form of attention and one of the things that prayer is about, and perhaps one of the reasons that we find prayer difficult in uh, our world today is that we're just not used to settling, taking time uh, and paying attention, in this case, to God paying attention to the world and, and ourselves and our needs and the world's needs and bringing them to God. Crawford makes this beautiful point that learning to repair a motorbike was a bit like learning to draw. He thinks learning to draw is about attending to things and almost letting the reality in front of you teach you And there's a sense of that with his motorbikes too, that he's had to sort of cultivate a sort of humility before them and attend to them and and let all these examples of uh, bikes in front of him teach him. I suppose one of the other interesting theological points is his emphasis on on excellence and you could also say pride. So pride um, often is described as the most serious of the seven deadly sins, the sins that lead to other sins. Uh, So pride doesn't really get a very good um, press in the Christian tradition, and I'm sure pride defined in that way as a sin, Uh, it doesn't deserve to. But we do use the word also um, in this sense of knowing that you're doing something well, um, being able to take pride in it. And uh, Crawford makes the point that when you learn to be good at something, especially some sort of practical skill. He talks about learning to wire a building as an engineer uh, in his youth and he says that it was through knowing how to do that well and taking pride in it that then he was able to recognise similar skill in other people, people uh, in some cases from very different backgrounds from his own and feel a sense of commonality and a sense of honour for them. So he talks about being uh, somewhere in the developing world. And he couldn't speak the language and the culture was very different but he noticed people wiring a building and he thought oh they're doing a really good job of that uh, they should take pride in that like i learned to take pride in it and he thinks of that as a way of building connections between people so i think that that, that theme of pride would probably also be a good one to discuss um, and maybe we need to come up with a different word since it as i say hasn't featured so uh, positively in, in the christian tradition but i think he's onto to something there
0: that's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find news, analysis, comment, book reviews and more on our website. You can also find our latest subscription offers at churchtimes.co.uk slash subscribe. The music this week was by Sort After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode and thanks for listening.